0: Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. We're going to look just briefly at verse 19 as we bridge into chapter 12. There's an interesting reference here to the ark of His Testament. And I believe it behooves us to pause and look at this because it directly bridges into what is revealed in chapters 12 through 14. There's a reason why the heaven is opened and God's ark is shown. There's a reason why at this point. Because what comes next uh, makes that vision a source of comfort for those that are in terrible persecution and tribulation. So let's look at chapter 11 verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in His temple the ark of His testament. As I mentioned last week, that word translated testament in the Greek is the word we translate covenant in the Hebrew. In the temple was seen the ark of His covenant, or the ark of the covenant. And there were lightnings and voices. These voices indicate that this is yet a third stanza of that great worship service in chapter 11. Lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. A picture of God's crescendoing judgment. And then we immediately go into chapter 12 where John sees two great wonders in heaven. And then he sees other persons or personages that relate to these wonders. Those wonders are a woman, a sun-clothed woman... Uh, crowned with stars and the moon beneath her feet and a great red dragon having uh, seven heads and ten horns and his seven heads are crowned. So we go from this worship service immediately into two great wonders and when the heaven is open the ark of the testament is seen. Now last week we talked about in the book of Hebrews how it mentions several times that the things that Moses And the children of Israel built in the wilderness regarding the tabernacle, and the ark, and all of the utensils were based on a specific pattern that God gave Moses in the mount. Precise dimensions. And these things were earthly representations of a heavenly pattern. The tabernacle was an earthly representation of a heavenly temple the heavenly temple in which Christ entered after His resurrection and offered up His blood in the heavenly holies of holies. That's why the women couldn't touch Him when He first got out of the grave. He said, I've not yet ascended to my Father. And then in one of the other resurrection accounts, He meets women uh, returning to the Mount of Olives and they do hug on Him and He has no problem with it. Well, Why is that? Is that a contradiction? No. Christ left the garden when he rose up from the grave and immediately went to heaven and offered up his blood in that heavenly temple. So we know that everything made was made after a heavenly pattern. So the question here is, is what is seen in heaven the actual Ark of the Covenant, where no one knows where it is to this day? Or is it the heavenly pattern upon which the earthly replica was built? Well, since we're looking at a heavenly temple here, it makes sense to me. This is the heavenly prototype. You know, some would teach that God took His Ark back to heaven and that's where it is today. But there's no reason to believe other than this is the heavenly prototype. And if the earthly was just a pattern of the heavenly, then is the earthly really that important? Why is all this energy being expended to find something that's just a replica anyway? But I want to look at the Ark of the Covenant And trace its history a bit in the Old Testament. Because we have mention here of the ark of God's testimony. It behooves us to interpret scripture with scripture. That's a sound hermeneutic. And that's what we're going to do today. Turn to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. We're going to start at verse 8. And we're going to read through verse 22. And then, uh, Daniel, if you'll have Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 1, waiting in the wings. Let's read. Chapter 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. God is speaking to Moses in Mount Sinai. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so you shall make it. So God is showing Moses a pattern, not just of the tabernacle, but of the instruments. And then the first instrument he is to make, verse 10, and they shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. That's about three and three-quarter feet long. And a cubit and a half, the breadth thereof, two and a quarter foot wide, and a cubit and a half the height thereof, two and a quarter foot deep. So we're not talking about a very big instrument. About this wide, about this long, about this wide, and about this deep, okay? Probably about the size of one of those black Conoco trunks you used to get at Walmart. We used to use those to travel overseas. We've had them since the late 90s and they're still great for traveling. But it's about that size, maybe even a little smaller. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken. So in other words, there were these rings in which a staff or a stick went through, and they were to stay in the ark, and it's with the staffs or the sticks that the priest would bear the ark. So they wouldn't actually touch the ark and pick it up. They would pick it up with these sticks and carry it. That allowed them to carry a very heavy weight, but it also kept them from touching the the ark. Verse 16, and thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. So this ark was made to house the word of God. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. This is the covering Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half shall be the breadth thereof. It was to fully cover the opening of the ark. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat, shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof and the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high covering the mer- mercy seat with their wings and their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be and thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee so this mercy seat was the cover and on top of the cover were two cherubims an angelic beam And as they were on each end and they sat facing each other, their wings were extended like so, touching each other and they were facing each other. Facing the mercy seat. The the center part of that covering where God says in verse 22, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. So from that mercy seat where the angels' wings were touching, the Shekinah glory of God would appear and commune with Moses, and commune with Israel. Okay? So you had the ark and you, that contained God's Word, that contained the law, and then you had the covering or the mercy seat, which was the instrument whereby sinful man could commune with a holy God. And that's where God would meet with Moses. And so... Uh, We know the dimensions and the pattern come from a heavenly pattern. This is what the ark was. When is it that these things were told to Moses? Daniel, read Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 1. At that time the Lord said unto me, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and come up to me into the mount, and make thee an ark of wood. When did God give these instructions to Moses about the ark? He gave them to him after the golden calf incident. Remember, God gave uh, Moses two tables of stone written with the finger of God. The law of God. Moses brought it down from the mount and what did he find? He found the children of Israel having a big pagan orgy, worshipping before a golden calf. These are thy gods, O Israel. The people were naked and they were rising up to play. I mean, the Hebrew or the English uses... Um. Uh. uh, Um. I guess what, what what would be the word here? The English uses polite terminology to describe what was a sexual orgy. Paganism. Okay, that's what Moses found, and Moses was angry, and he threw those tables down, and they broke. And then, of course, God's judgment fell upon the people. Okay, and it was the tribe of Levi that stood with Moses on the side of the Lord, and as a result of that, the tribe of Levi would take the place of the firstborn. They would be the ones that would minister in the tabernacle and minister before the Lord through the priesthood, which was of the tribe of Levi. And so these things had happened, and then Moses goes back up to the mount. And when he goes back up to the mount, God tells him he's going to make another set of uh, uh, tables, and then he's going to make an ark to house the tables, So this happens after the golden calf incident. Well, what do we learn about that? Well, we learn that you don't come to God through the law. Impossible. Moses came down from the mountain with the law of God. And what happened? Judgment and destruction. You can't come to God through the law. And Israel demonstrated that. Even though they had seen God's Judgment, they had seen His mighty hands, how quick they were to revert to pagan idolatry. And before the law, they were nothing but judged and condemned. So when Moses came back up to the mount, God said, Alright, I'm going to make a second set. And this time we're going to put them in the ark, which is covered by a mercy seat. You see, we can't come to God through the law. The law reveals our wickedness. We can only come to God through His mercy His mercy. And so now the tables are put in the ark which is covered with a mercy seat. That's how Israel could commune with God. Not through the law, but through the mercy of God despite the condemnation of the law. So I think that's an interesting insight into what was happening here and what God was teaching them. So this stuff happened after the golden calf incident. The word translated ark here in Exodus and Deuteronomy is the same word that's used or translated coffin in Genesis 50, 50 verse 26 you see Moses I mean Joseph died when he was 110 years old in Egypt and they put him in a coffin he was he was mummified and then carried back and his bones were carried back to Israel but that's the same word it's like a coffin that houses the law of God okay and the covering is the mercy of God God told Moses to make this ark according to precise dimensions. Moses was obedient. The dimensions were important because they were after a heavenly prototype. The second set of Ten Commandments were put inside. <clears throat> okay. The Bible also told us tells us that two other things were put in the ark. Anybody know what they were? Pot of manna, we learn in Exodus. And we don't learn this until the New Testament. What else was put in there? Aaron's rod that budded. These three things were put in there. So the writer of Hebrews, Paul the Apostle, knew something that wasn't recorded in the Old Testament. These things were put inside the ark. The golden atonement cover uh, had two cherubims facing with their wings touching. This is the mercy seat where God would meet with Moses, and once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later in the temple and would put the blood on the mercy seat, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, at which time God would cover the sins of Israel and commune with her. Now, as far as the mercy seat is concerned, we don't know exactly what it looked like. We can kind of guess or... or, or uh, envision something but we don't know what it looks like in hebrews chapter 9 verse 5 when paul is talking about the ark he tells us what was in it and then in verse 5 he says and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly in other words we don't know exactly what that looked like in paul's day he's saying this okay What we learn from God's instruction to Moses concerning the ark is that God's um, presence is not linked to a visible form. God would not meet with Israel in visible form. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. That's why Israel sins so greatly in making a golden calf and likening God to the creature when He is the Creator. You see, God is far above His creation. When He became a man, He condescended for our behalf. But God is no more like the greatest cherub in heaven than He is the bacteria floating in the toilet. He's no more like one than the other. He's above that. His presence is not visible in form apart from Jesus Christ who became man to die in our place. And so be careful about making an image of God. That's where Israel sinned. The image we have is Jesus Christ. And we don't know what He looked like particularly. We have paintings and artwork and things like that. Some of that is based upon the imprint on the Shroud of Turin and other things. But we can't know particularly. We shouldn't try to know. The ark was set up in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And later it was put in into the innermost sanctuary of the temple. Its contents primarily were the law of God, which represented His divine holiness. The atonement cover represented His divine mercy. It was the meeting of God's holiness and His mercy, symbolized in the ark. Let's look at the ark's history for a minute. We know Moses was told to make it. It was made. It was put in the tabernacle in the wilderness. It wandered with Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. In fact, it says in Numbers that it went before them and it guided them to places of rest. So it went before them to find places where they could camp safely and have access to what they needed to survive. When Israel wandered in the wilderness, their shoes didn't wax old. Their garments didn't wax old and have to be replaced. I know when I go trekking in the mountains, man, stuff that I've I've got gets messed up and has to be replaced. That in and of itself was a miracle. A miracle from God. The preservation of Israel in the wilderness. A miracle. But the ark went before them to help them find places of rest. When we get to the book of Joshua, the ark was instrumental in the crossing of the Jordan River. In fact, it was to go a half a mile ahead of the people. The people were not to get any closer than about a half a mile. And the priest bore the ark into the Jordan at the time of the floodings at a place called Adam or Adam. You can go there today. The, the Jordan is just a trickle compared to what it used to be because of dams and stuff in the north. But um, the ark, when it touched, the priest's feet touched the water, the waters parted and it went before them into Canaan. It was instrumental in the capture of Jericho. Israel circled the city seven times for seven days. And the ark went before the people and the walls came crashing down. Joshua prayed before the ark after the defeat of Israel at Ai, Achan's sin in the camp. And it was before the ark that God revealed the sin of the people to Joshua. Joshua didn't understand why the people were defeated. God, are you not keeping your promises? God said, get up off your rear end. There's sin in the camp. It was before the ark that sin was revealed. What was in the ark? The law of God. It's the law of God that reveals sin in our life. Whether we have sinned is not based upon how we feel about it. Our conscience may be at rest. Whether or not we've sinned is according to the word of God. We may claim our conscience is at rest. We may claim God has, is blessing us and therefore avoid the fact that we have sinned. But it's before the law of God, the Word of God, that our sin is revealed. These other things mean nothing. In fact, if you're in sin and you're comfortable and you're without a conscience and you seem to be blessed, then that's a scary place to be. The Bible says to be without chastisement In sin, according to the word of God, makes you a bastard and not a spiritual child of God. Scary. The law reveals our sin, just like the before the ark, the sin of the camp was revealed to Joshua. Don't trust your feelings and don't trust your outward circumstances to to convince you one way or another if you're right or wrong. Look to the word of God. Um, after the victory, after the sin was taken care of, there was victory at Ai. Joshua wrote a copy of the law before the ark in Mount Abal, in Mount Gerizim. And these were read before the people. That's where we had the blessings and the curses. Had the privilege of standing atop uh, one of those. I think it was Mount Gerizim in Israel last spring. And looking over the ancient city of Shechem, you could see the tomb of Joseph which some of the Palestinian vermin tried to destroy recently. But it was an interesting place to be. And you could look out over the landscape across to Mount Ebal and you could see how it was a natural amphitheater for the tribes to be gathered and to hear the word of the Lord. In the days of Eli and Samuel, the ark was kept in the tabernacle at Shiloh. When Israel entered into Canaan, the the tabernacle was erected at a place called Shiloh. Um, It's it's an interesting place. You can go there today, and what's amazing is that Shiloh was an ancient biblical city that's actually arisen out of the ashes of history. In January of 1978, modern Shiloh was incorporated on the ancient site of Shiloh where the tabernacle stood. And today it has about 2,000 families. It's an actual Jewish town. When you go there, you can look over. It's it's an amazing natural amphitheater. And they've unearthed ruins of a small village nearby with an olive press where the priests and stuff would have lived. This is where Samuel would have gone to minister before the Lord at the tabernacle. And there's a giant amphitheater surrounded by hills. And they actually found pieces of pottery that had names of the different tribes written on there. As if it would indicate where they were to camp when Israel gathered at Shiloh. And so you can actually stand on the site of where the tabernacle used to stand. And it's an amazing place, an amazing testimony that out of the ashes of history, God still reserves and protects and preserves Israel. Arisen out of the ashes. Um, Eli's wicked sons, who Eli failed to restrain... That's why God judged him. He was a righteous man and a righteous priest. He gave Samuel, the young child, sound advice when Samuel came asking about, are you calling me? Are you calling me? And Eli said, no, it must be the Lord. Go and listen. And when he speaks, he said, here am I. Tell me what you want. I mean, I will listen. That's the best advice you can give your child. When God speaks to you, listen and do what He says. Eli was a righteous man, but he had wicked sons and he did not restrain them. He did not discipline them. He did not remove them from the priesthood. And this was a great sin that resulted in the overthrow of his family. Later we know Samuel himself had wicked sons that weren't properly restrained. We have the responsibility in the church to restrain evil and wickedness. Not just in our children, but within our bodies. And when we don't do this, we commit the sin of Eli. It's a sin of cowardice. And cowardice is the first thing listed in the list of sins accompanying those cast into the lake of fire. Being a coward is being a sinner. If you're a coward, you're a sinner. You need to repent. Eli's sons took the ark into battle against the Philistines. And it was captured by the Philistines. We can read about this in 1 Samuel 4. Somebody ran back to Eli there in Shiloh to tell him what was happening. What's happening? What's happening? Eli was concerned about the ark. What about the ark? And they said, Israel is overthrown and the ark has been captured. Eli was a fat man, a heavy man, and he was seated in a chair. And when he heard this news in shock, he fell back out of the chair and broke his neck and died. At the same time, one of his daughter-in-laws was pregnant. And the news of her the death of her father-in-law and of her husband and of the ark of the Lord caused her to go into early labor. And she died in childbirth and she gave birth to a son, and they asked her, What, what do you want us to call him? And she said, Call him Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. There's a lot of churches in America today where Ichabod needs to be spray painted on the door. Because the glory of God's departed. It's not there. Ichabod. The ark was taken. It was taken for a period of seven months. And it was paraded between the the, uh, five major Philistine cities. Several of which are still in existence today. Ashdod, Ashkelon. uh, Those are still cities in Israel, by the way. They're near the West Bank. Some of them are in the West Bank. but as it traveled from city to city, it brought plagues upon the people. In fact, the Philistines put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And they came in the next morning and found the idol fall flat on his face. Then they put him back up and then they found him with his head cut off and his hands cut off. And so Dagon, their god, or the image of their god, was humiliated before the ark. The Philistines got so, so uh, frightened by all of this that they ceremoniously sent the ark back to Israel. It says that they put, made a cart for it and that they actually made golden representatives of the plagues that God had sent among them and put them on this cart. And they attached the cart to a couple of cattle and those cattle walked it back to Israel. And it says that they were lowing as they went. These cattle went of their own accord, but they were lowing because they were leaving their calves behind. Which means God was driving them. Now, I've often wondered what in the world a golden representative of a plague would look like. You see, God plagued the Philistines with mice and rats. And so we know what that would look like. But He also plagued them with what the King James translates as emeralds. Emeralds were boils. Some say they were hemorrhoids. But they were boils or tumors that appeared in the genital, genital areas. So it was like God plagued the people with these, this awful disease in their genital areas. Leaking, boiling boils. Painful sores. And the Philistines made golden representatives of these to offer up to God. I don't know what that would look like. How would you make a golden representative of a nasty, boiling, open sore in your genital area? But God plagued them and they made representatives, five mice and five emerods, to, sim- to symbolize the five lords or the five major cities of the Philistines in which these plagues came. Because they all suffered equally. Um, the ark came to a place called Beth Shemesh into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite and it tells us in something in 1 Samuel chapter 6:19 what happened when it came back to Israel just walked into town and walked right into this field in Beth Shemesh which is a town you can still go to today unlike the book of Mormon that lists all these places that don't even exist never have existed there's no archaeological ruins or anything at these sites but Beth Shemesh is a place that exists today 1 Samuel 6:19 says and it came in, in, into the field. And it says, God smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even He smote of the people 50,000 threescore and ten men. 50,070 people were slaughtered because they opened the ark and looked into it. They lightly esteemed the holiness of God. They opened the ark and went right and looked right into it to see what was in there, lightly esteeming his word and his holiness, and not approaching it through his mercy. You remove the mercy seat, there is no mercy. And they were slaughtered. They were slaughtered. Very quickly the ark was taken to Kiriath Yadim, which is a literal place. Uh, Ricky and I um, visited the ruins there. Removed quickly to Kiriath Yarim into the house of Abinadab, and it was to be kept by his son, 1 Samuel 7, and it stayed there for, for 20 years. So the ark was taken, it went to Beth Shemesh, people were slaughtered, and then it stayed there. Nobody wanted to mess with it after that for 20 years. Okay? Um, the, the, when the ark was taken, and Eli died, those events and the return of the ark to Israel is what actually gave rise to Samson. So Samson and his exploits took place during this period of time when the ark was in Kiriath Okay, And then when Samuel takes the people and has the great victory over the Philistines at Mizpah, This battle was occasioned by Samson's destruction of the temple. His last dying act. So the chronology is kind of interesting there. Okay? Many years later, 20 years later, David brought the ark to Jerusalem. And he had quite a few trials and uh, misadventures doing so. The sin of the people at Beth Shemesh was they just denied the holiness of God... And denied the need for mercy, and just opened the ark to look in there, and they were um, slaughtered. During David's trials and misadventures, the holiness and the mercy of God wasn't denied, it was spurned, and it was taken lightly. The Bible tells us a couple of things. Look up numbers 4:15, Matthew, and Jason, if you'll read Hebrews 10:29) <clears throat> when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary as the camp is to to set forward, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it. They shall not touch any holy thing unless they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation. Okay? They were told they were not to touch anything holy. They were not to touch the ark. That's why the staves were there. God said if they do, they'll die. Well, God does what He says He's going to do. Period. Whether you like it or not. Whether you think it's right or not, when God says something, He does it. He means business. When they opened up the ark and looked into it, according to the Torah, the law of God, they died. Hebrews 10.29 Of how much store. Shall he be thought worthy? Who hath trodden under the foot of the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace? Okay. Jesus Christ is the mercy seat of God. He's the interposed sacrifice. He's the means to salvation with God. The law reveals our sin. Jesus Christ becomes our sin sacrifice so that we can have access to God. If we know these things and we've been given this knowledge and yet we lightly esteem it and consider it not to be important, how much solver is our punishment to know the truth and yet spurn it? The Bible tells us in 1 Chronicles something that happened as the ark was being taken to Jerusalem. It says in 1 Chronicles 13, uh, start at verse uh, 7, And they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might, and with singing and with harps and with psalteries and with timbrels and with cymbals and with trumpets, worshiping God. And when they came into the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, because the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him, because he put his hand on the ark. And there he died before the Lord, or before God. And David was displeased, because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, wherefore that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? So David brought not the ark home to himself, to the city of David, but carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And then it tells us it remained there for three months before David brought it back or was able to bring it to the city. We have an interesting picture here of what God thinks about pragmatism in his worship. There's a lot of things in our worship that seem practical. You know, we want to see people saved and if we can get people into the church, they'll hear the Word of God and maybe they'll get saved. So as long as we can get them in here, it doesn't matter how we do it. This ark was being driven on a cart and the oxen stumbled. So the practical thing to do was to try to steady the ark to keep it from falling. It made sense. Don't we want to protect the ark? But the one who extended his hand... To hold the ark in place was smitten by God. Because, God. because God has given His word about what is right. You're not to touch it. It doesn't matter why you touched it. You're not to touch it. So in pragmatism, Uzzah set forth his hand. It made sense the oxen stumbled. But God's word trumped pragmatism. The mean, the ends never justify the means with God. And this ought to be a lesson to the church. That it doesn't matter what your end game is. It doesn't matter how you think uh, people will come to Christ or how you think God should be worshipped. His Word tells us. In the midst of all this worship, Israel forgot that. David was displeased. He didn't understand. Even David was led astray with a pragmatic uh, perception there. But once again, God demonstrated that when He says something, He means business. You see, the men of Beth Shemesh denied the holiness of God. Or they denied the need for mercy. We can just open the ark and look at it. He's our God. There, with Uzzah and David on the way to Jerusalem, the mercy of God was spurned. Yes, it was acknowledged. The the mercy seat wasn't removed, but it was lightly esteemed. You're in big trouble when you deny the need for Christ. That's why those that deny Christ is who He is, that He's come in the flesh, are not saved. They're not Christians. But you're in trouble when you lightly esteem the role of Christ in salvation and in the ministry of the church. These are lessons we could learn from the saga of the ark. Eventually, the ark was brought to Jerusalem. It was pitched there in a tent made by David. Years later, Zadok and the Levites carried it out of Jerusalem during Absalom's rebellion. But David told them to take it back and wait because God would restore things. You see, David learned from the error of pragmatism. He was displeased with God because of the breach made upon Uzzah. It made sense to study the ark. But years later, in Absalom's rebellion, it would have made sense pragmatically to take it out of Jerusalem to protect it. But David said, no, take it back. It's God's. We'll trust Him. David learned. Let us learn. People coming to Christ, that's God's problem. We're just ambassadors. Let's speak the truth. Let's teach one another. Let's don't sit here worrying about everything else. That's God's problem. Let's do right according to His Word and not according to how we think or feel. The priest would later in 1 Kings put the ark in Solomon's temple. They put it there. Um, in the Holy of Holies. And 1 Kings 8 verse 9 tells us, at that time there was nothing in the ark but the two tables of stone. So sometime between the building of the ark in the wilderness and the putting of it into the temple, something happened to the pot of manna, something happened to Aaron's rod that budded. Is it possible that the men of Beth Shemesh opened the ark and took these things out and messed with them? And as a result, they were destroyed or lost, possibly. When was it that the ark would have been brought or put in Solomon's temple? It would have been about 1005 B.C. So Moses would have made it around 1445 B.C. So about 440 years later, The ark was put into the temple. And then we don't hear much about it. After the destruction of the first temple, B.C. 586, at the hands of the Babylonians, there's no evidence, nothing in Scripture, there's no real solid evidence historically as to what happened to the ark. Nobody knows what happened to it. It was in the temple... The first temple, but that temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and the Babylonians, God's judgment against a wicked Israel that had turned their backs on him, but there's no evidence as to what happened to it. There's a lot of Jewish speculation and fables and tradition about it, but no solid evidence. You know, when the Bible says in the New Testament to stay away from fables and vain and profane babblings and Jewish disputes about the law... That's primarily be, being directed toward Jewish believers. Because if there's one thing Jews like to do, it's speculate. The traditions and the fables, I mean, it's mind-numbing. There are reasons for why this site must be here and that site must be there. It's not based upon anything other than speculation and tradition. We do know that the Ark was not in the second temple. The temple that was rebuilt after uh, the Jews returned from Babylon. The temple that Herod remodeled. The temple that was standing in Jesus' day. There was no ark in there. There was no mercy seat whereby God communed with Israel. It wasn't there. It had been lost. Um, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 35. There's an interesting story about the death of Josiah, the righteous king, that I think may shed some light on it. Josiah became king when he was eight years old. He had a wicked father and a terribly wicked grandfather. Now, his grandfather did repent and get right with God. Amazing picture of God's mercy. Um, And he changed after he repented. It wasn't just words. He acknowledged his sin. He didn't just say, I feel sorry. He acknowledged it and then he changed. But nonetheless, Josiah's heart was um, tender to the things of God from a child. He ruled for 31 years, and at age 39, he was killed. And what's interesting about this, um, his death, in 2 Chronicles 35 verse 20, it says, After all of this, after everything that happened, the law was found, the Passover was kept, Josiah wrought religious reform throughout the country, the people turned back to God, after all this... When Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. So the Egyptians came up through Palestine to fight the Babylonians at Carchemish. Which is a major battle whereby the Babylonian Empire overthrew Egypt. And so Necho was coming up to fight Babylon. His beef was not with Israel. He had no reason to be angry with them. He was just passing through the land. But it says that Josiah went out against him. But he sent ambassadors to him saying, What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, forbear thee from meddling with God who is with me, that he destroy thee not. So in other words, I'm not I don't have any problem with you. Let me pass through. I'm going to fight with Babylon. God may or may not have told him to do it. We know he got his rear end stalled at the battle of Carchemish. And Egypt as a mighty kingdom passed from the annals of history. Nevertheless, verse 22, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him, and hearkened not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God, and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And then it says the archers shot him and he was died. Megiddo is where Armageddon will take place. So, nevertheless, Josiah was persistent. And the word disguise is used. He disguised himself. Okay? Now that could talk about what he was wearing or it could talk about he was disguising his purpose. Was he really going out to fight Necho? Or was he willing to sacrifice his own life to protect something that was important and disguise his real mission? Some traditions say that uh, Josiah is the one that saw what was coming. He saw the rise of Babylon. He knew what was coming. He knew based upon having read the law and, com- and having a right heart with God that Israel could not escape judgment. Okay, He knew it. And so he took action to hide and protect the ark. I've always wondered, why would you insist on fighting an enemy like Necho when he doesn't have a problem with you? And he says, why? Why? Why would you insist upon doing something like that? Well, if your mission, if, if, you're, if you, were, you were attempting to disguise what you were really trying to do, then maybe there's a reason. Maybe his real mission was to hide the ark and to create a diversion so that no one would know where it was put. That makes sense to me. There's Jewish tradition that says that. The Jews have been looking for the ark for years. Some claim it's underneath the temple mount. You know, a lot of that's just fairy tales. But apparently Josiah had an ulterior motive for why he went to Megiddo to fight Pharaoh Necho. It was a diversion so the ark could be taken out of Jerusalem and hidden somewhere. Josiah was willing to risk his life to protect something that was holy to God. And he gave his life for it. Paul knew, he was warned by God through the prophet not to go to Jerusalem. And he went anyway, willing to risk his life, to voice the gospel to the Jews of his hometown. So that's kind of the same spirit we see going on there with King Josiah. So apparently, or maybe he did something with it and hid it somewhere and it's never been found to this day. Some would say God actually took the ark out of the earth just like he took Enoch out in Genesis. And that's what we're seeing in Revelation 11. I don't believe that based upon what God told Moses in the mount to make an earthly replica of a heavenly prototype. I think what we see in Revelation 11 is a heavenly prototype. The earthly pattern was taken out of Jerusalem. It's been hidden somewhere and it's never been found to this day. The Holy of Holies in the heart of the tabernacle. Once a year the high priest would go in there to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. This is Yom Kippur. The day of atonement. Jesus fulfilled that feast when He offered up His blood on the heavenly ark. In the heavenly temple. The fulfillment of the feast. Just like He fulfilled the feast of Passover. He fulfilled the feast of unleavened bread. Okay? He fulfilled the feast of uh, Pentecost. Okay? Or or first fruits at His resurrection. Pentecost. The ultimate day of atonement is when Israel wakes up and recognizes He's their Messiah and embraces the benefits of what was done in that heavenly temple. But He will fulfill the others. Trumpets, the rapture, Yom Kippur, Israel's awakening, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the millennial kingdom. Christ is the fulfillment of these things. They're just a shadow. What you had with the ark was not a visible form. You had the presence of of the Word or the Law of God with an atoning cover over the Law. The Ark's contents were divine holiness by which we all stand condemned. But the Ark's form, its structure with a cover, was divine redeeming mercy through shed blood. A picture of Christ. By the Word of God, we are condemned. But by Jesus Christ, the form that the Word took, the living Word, we can have mercy. He is the mercy seat. He fulfilled what the ark pointed to. So if that's the case, and it was just an earthly replica, is it really that important? Is it as important as the Jews make it out to be, claiming they need it to rebuild a temple? I don't think so. Turn to Jeremiah 3. I don't think it's important at all. And I don't think it ever needs to be found. Jeremiah 3, 16 and 17. Now this was prophesied by Jeremiah in the days in which Israel was carried captive and Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was burned and the ark had been taken out. Maybe Jeremiah even knew this. And he hints at knowing this because he was. I don't think he was contemporaneous with Josiah. I'm not sure. I'd have to look at that. But... Perhaps he knew this because he says in verse 16, And it shall come to pass when you be multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, saith the Lord, that they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done anymore. At that time shall they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall be gathered into it to the name of the Lord to Jerusalem. Neither more shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil hearts. So here we have a glimpse of the millennial kingdom. Jeremiah is saying there's coming a time when the ark won't even be important anymore. It would no longer be significant for worship. It's no longer needed because the Lord will sit on His throne in Jerusalem. It's not important. Jesus, when He walked this earth, never mentioned or addressed the Ark of the Covenant in the Gospels. Why? Because He was divine holiness plus divine redeeming mercy. He was the embodiment of what the Ark represented. So when He walked on the temple grounds, what the Ark represented was there in the flesh. And that's what made that second temple, which wasn't as glorious. It didn't contain the ark, but it was more glorious in God's eyes. In the prophet Haggai, the, the people, the old men that saw it, it was just a shadow of what once was, were weeping. And the prophet comforted them and said, this, The glory of this house will be more glorious than the first house. Well, the ark was never there, but the embodiment of the ark. Walked in it. In fact, that prophecy proves that Jesus had to be the Messiah. He had to come and actually set foot on the temple grounds before the second temple was destroyed. The desire of all nations came to the temple. The living embodiment of the ark. That's why that second temple was more glorious despite the fact that the ark wasn't there. And it's sad that the Jews could not see that. Let's look at Hebrews 9 a moment in terms of Christ. Hebrews 9:11 and 12, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. Christ went into the heavenly tabernacle, entered into the heavenly holy place and offered up his blood on the mercy seat of the heavenly ark of the testimony. Once he was divine holiness plus divine redeeming mercy. That's why it says in Hebrews 10:26 um For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. A lot of people look at this and they deny the Jewish context and they try to say this means you can lose your salvation. No. What is the knowledge of the truth? The knowledge of the truth is that Jesus was divine holiness plus divine redeeming mercy. Jesus went once into the heavenly tabernacle and offered up His blood. Paul is writing this to Jews. They're wavering back and forth between following Christ and trusting Him as the fulfillment, or reverting back to the Old Testament sacrificial system in which there was no ark to offer blood on a mercy seat. They're wavering back and forth. And what Paul is saying is, you that have knowledge, you have knowledge. I've spoken to you the gospel. If you continue to sin, you don't have another sacrifice. It's Christ or nothing. To so understand, if you continue to sin in that willfully, which we all do, if you don't see Jesus for who He is, it doesn't matter what you do in the temple. You can take a turtle dove, you can take a lamb, you can take anything you want, but there is no other sacrifice. Christ fulfilled it so those other things have no meaning anymore. Christ embodied the ark, therefore the old ark has no meaning anymore. The Jews can search for it high and low. Who knows, maybe they'll find it and stick it in a tribulation temple. But that's not a temple to God. That's a temple to Antichrist. They're just building His throne. None of those things have any meaning. It's only when Israel recognizes Jesus as His Messiah and calls for Him. And when they do, He will come. And He will rescue them. Jesus Christ in the Millennial Kingdom is present. The ark isn't needed. There is no other sacrifice but Jesus Christ. If you sin, you've got no other sacrifice. There remains no more sacrifice. So it's either Christ to find forgiveness or nothing. That's what Hebrews is teaching us, being written to Jews. Then in Hebrews 6, where Paul talks about the same things, nobody ever reads verse 9, which says, but I am convinced better things of you, things that accompany salvation. So this wavering is something different than salvation. It's not losing your salvation. That's false teaching that denies a Jewish context here. You can't deny to whom a scriptural epistle is written. You can't deny those historic contexts there. You'll get in trouble. If the ark is not important anymore because of what Jesus did, if it had no place in the second temple, if it has no place in the millennial kingdom, why is it mentioned here in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. Why is it mentioned? I believe this is the heavenly prototype. I believe the heavens are opened at this point and it's revealed to John. Okay? It's seen. Why at this point in the book? Well, consider that the ark contained the law of God. What is the law of God? The law of God is the Word of God. What does the Word of God contain? All the promises of God. The law of God shows us that God cannot lie and he keeps his covenants. You know, the God we believe, the God I preach, there are things he can't do, friends. You know, I know the atheist and the philosopher can't handle those things. Can't handle those things. But yes, there are things God can't do. And I'm not talking about making a rock so big he can't lift it. That's vain and profane babblings, Oppositions of science falsely so-called. But there are things God cannot do. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says He cannot lie. It's against His nature. Just like a circle can't be a square and vice versa. It's against His nature. Just like anatomically speaking you're born a man, you can't be a woman. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you think. I don't care how you identify yourself. If you're born anatomically a man, you're a man. And I ain't going to call you a woman. You can fine me $100,000 all you want. You can't get blood from a turnip like this commission in New York has said now. They're going to fine business owners if they don't properly refer to their their employees according to their gender identity, not their gender anatomy. So what? You can say it all day long. You can pass laws all day long. It doesn't change facts. God cannot lie. And someone born with a man's anatomy can't be a woman. Period. End of the story. God cannot lie. When He said He made them male and female, and a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto do his wife, God doesn't lie. I don't care what you say. God, a marriage is man and a woman. Not a man and a man. You can say it all day long. Empty robes in the Supreme Court can say something. Fools, morons that run our government can say one thing. It doesn't matter. God cannot lie. About anything. What, God, what can God not do, particularly in terms of Israel? Malachi 3.6, He cannot change. The fact that Israel, despite all of her idolatries, is preserved unto this day is evidence that God does not change. What do what the Reformed theologians or the replacement theology people do with that verse? I'm sure they'll weasel their way out of it somehow with an allegory. That's what they like to do. What else can God God not do? Maybe children, you should listen up here. God can't lie, He can't change, He can't let anyone into heaven unless they've been born again. It doesn't matter how many times you went to church. It doesn't matter how many times you pray. It doesn't matter what you claim. The people that were slaughtered at Beth Shemesh revered the ark, but they were judged. Maybe you revere the things of God, but you... Deny them in how you live. um, When David tried to bring the ark up, they revered the ark. They considered it important, but they acted in pragmatism. They did what they thought was right. And God wrought judgment. You can't come to God apart from Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the only means to enter God's kingdom. To repent of our sins and to put our faith in Him... Is what it is to be born again. John tells us to be born again is to be born of God. And to be born of God is to have the Spirit of God born in you by grace and faith. Apart from that, God can't let you into heaven. It's simple though. God speaks to your heart. Listen. Follow Him. Believe upon Him. Trust Him. What does the ark specifically represent? Psalm 132 verse 8 says something about the ark. We know it represents divine holiness coupled with divine redeeming mercy, but to Israel it represented something as well. In addition... Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. Where Israel is concerned, it also represented the strength of the Lord. It was the strength of the Lord that caused the walls of Jericho to fall. And it was the ark that represented it. It was the strength of the Lord represented by the ark that caused Dagon to fall on his face and then his head to fall off and his hands to fall off. It was the strength of the Lord represented by the ark that caused the waters of the Jordan to recede so Israel can cross into the promised land. Wherever it rested, Israel dwelled in the wilderness in safety. Who is on the earth at this time when all of these terrible things are happening? We've already read about what coincides with the end of the sixth trumpet. Halfway through chapter 11, what event specifically coincides with the end of the sixth trumpet or the second woe? The martyrdom The resurrection and the rapture of God's two special witnesses. Their ministry was to Jews, particularly. We know that we're into the second half of the tribulation. We know and we'll see in the ensuing chapters that Israel is undergoing grave persecution. There are witnesses that have been sealed that are doing God's work. There is a remnant that is being prepared to call upon their Messiah. And in the midst of all of this, the heavens are opened, and the ark of God's testimony, which represents his strength, is shown to the remnant of Israel on earth who are suffering horribly at the hands of Satan. And it's shown to them to give them strength to endure. I think of the passage in Jeremiah that was spoken in. The days of terrible persecution and the days of the captivity. Refrain thy voice from weeping, thy work shall be rewarded, and they will come again into the land. The ark being revealed, heaven opening and showing the remnant. The heavenly prototype of the ark is to remind them of the strength of the Lord and to give them strength to endure. I find it interesting that immediately following this, we get into Revelation chapter 12. Now the chapter divisions are not inspired, neither are the verses. They're great tools, and the people that gave them to us wouldn't claim they were inspired. Praise God for them. But oftentimes we look at chapter divisions as dividing subjects. That's not necessarily the case. We need to consider how one chapter flows into the next except perhaps the Psalms. The Psalms were uh, individual hymns. But with Revelation, it was an entire book. So we need to look at transitions and ask, how does the previous chapter relate to the one that follows? Immediately after this ark is revealed, which we know represents the strength of the Lord to Israel, which we know was important to Israel, which we know is something that Israel was seeking, We're told, Revelation 12, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his... Tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Immediately after the unveiling of this ark, we have the revelation of two great wonders. The sun-clothed woman, which I believe represents Israel, and the great red dragon which represents the arch enemy of Israel. So we're transitioning into another parenthesis which zooms out to show us the great spiritual conflict between Satan and the promised seed or the promised chosen people of Israel. So the revealing of the ark is a prologue to that. And it's a revelation to the remnant on earth that are going to suffer horribly As this spiritual conflict shows, that the strength is in the Lord and that they needed to have strength to endure and that strength could only be found in Him. Do the Jews need the ark to reinstitute sacrificial worship in a tribulation temple? No, they don't. It wasn't there in in Jesus' day and they were taking sacrifices. They don't need it to rebuild a temple. The temple they will rebuild. Their plan's already in the works. It will be rebuilt. It will be used. But the sacrificial system, though we rejoice at seeing these prophecies fulfilled, we need to pause and understand that this temple, this reinstitution of a sacrificial system will not bring Israel any closer to God. Only the opening of their eyes to see that Yeshua is Messiah will do that. This is a temple being constructed for Antichrist. I'm concerned about Christian ministries that want to fund the building of this temple and to do things to push the Jews to build it. They're just building the seat of the beast. The temple isn't going to fix the problems in Israel. The sacrifices aren't going to fix the problem. There's not even going to be an ark. Maybe there is an ark. Maybe they'll find it and put it there. But this won't fix the problem. And the temple rebuilt and the sacrificial system reinstituted will only continue for a short space. Because Antichrist will seize it and Israel will be driven into the wilderness to suffer terrible persecution, the time of Jacob's trouble. So the ark, though an amazing picture of God's judgment and mercy, though part of that original tabernacle, though traced down through Israel's history, is is lost. Will it be found? I don't know. Is it important? Is it what we see in heaven? I don't believe so. I believe it's the heavenly prototype. Is it a source of strength? No. The Lord is the source of strength. And a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, with or without the ark, is not the path to peace for Israel and the Jews. We need to understand that. Revelation 12 through 14. I'm going to quit here in a minute, but let's go ahead and just introduce this chapter. I've given you an outline. I believe this is immediately tied to the Ark of the Testament, which represents the strength of the Lord for Israel, because now what we're going to be looking at is the Great War, a war that is extended down through the ages, spiritually speaking, between Satan and Israel. Satan and the seed of the woman mentioned first there in Genesis chapter 3. Satan hates the church, make no mistake, but he hates Israel just as much. And when the church is taken out of the world, he turns all his wrath toward the physical seed of Abraham. I believe Revelation 12-14 through is another parenthesis of sorts. We have the narrative moving slowly. We've made our way through the seven seals. We're into the. We're, we're up to the seventh trumpet, and we've yet to see the unveiling of the seven vials, which are the seven trumpets. So again, we've got a pause per se that doesn't advance the narrative, but instead it zooms out. I believe at the advent of the seventh trumpet to reveal a bigger spiritual picture. Satan's war against Israel. What Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble. There are two important points we need to remember when we look at these characters and personages that are revealed in these next three chapters. Number one, there is a spiritual backdrop behind all war, behind all human government. Men do not control themselves. They don't. Every government has spiritual powers and principalities (coughs) behind it. In a way, you could look at man-made leaders that we think we elect as marionettes on strings being played with with powers and principalities. There is a spiritual campaign behind all earthly politics and earthly wars. We see this in Daniel. Daniel was praying And God sent an angel to him and that angel was restrained for 21 days battling the prince of Persia who was the demonic principality behind the government of Persia. Michael, the chief prince of the children of Israel, came to his aid and the angel was able to come and comfort Daniel. He then left Daniel and said, I've got to go. I've got to resume my battle with the prince of Persia. And then the prince of Greece is coming. Spiritual principalities, demonic beings behind earthly powers and kingdoms. In Ezekiel 28, the spiritual principality behind the king of Tyre is revealed to be Satan himself. Isaiah 14, the spiritual principality behind the kingdom of Babylon is Lucifer, the one who fell from heaven... Eric, look up Ephesians 6.12. Jason, 2 Corinthians 4.4. I'm I'm probably leaving out some of you guys there. I'm not meaning to. Don't take it that way. i just randomly am calling somebody. Ephesians 6.12. For well, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Period. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and principalities. There's a spiritual domain, despite what the atheist says. There's a spiritual domain. And so many of these professing political leaders and great teachers and atheists and philosophers and homosexuals and bulldaggers or whatever, they're just marionettes on strings. Being controlled by demons and devils. They don't even know they're being controlled. Second Corinthians 4.4 God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon you, should shine unto them. The God of this world, Satan. Is Satan bound with chains in the bottomless pit right now? No. Are we living in the millennium? No. Okay. Who is the God of this world at this present moment? Satan. This was a New Testament epistle written to the New Testament church after the resurrection. Okay? Satan didn't go to get chained in AD 70 when Jerusalem was overthrown. Satan's the god of this world. Now, God governs. Jesus Christ has authority and power. And there's coming a day when he will physically take it. But according to God's plan and purpose, Satan is the god of this world. And what does he do? He blinds. He doesn't only blind people to the realities and truths of the Gospel. He blinds people to the, the spiritual realm completely. Satan's wrought a great victory in Western civilization because he's blinded us to his very existence. And if he can convince us that there is no spiritual realm, that there is no Satan, that we are the embodiment or the, the highest uh, wrong on the food chain, per se, then he can render us powerless and deceived. You know, at least the third world—they understand there's a spiritual. They understand there's an evil one, and many of the gods they worship—they don't worship because they love them; they worship them because they fear them. And Paul says, "Who they worship are devils." But here in Western society, we don't even believe Satan even exists because he's a blinder. And our government actually thinks it stands and falls based upon its own power. Media Sync thinks the same thing. Foolishness. There is a spiritual realm. And if you're blinded to it, you're blinded to it because the godless world has blinded you. You need to humble yourself and repent and come to Christ so your eyes can be opened. Knowing these truths, knowing there's a spiritual element, we as Christians need to just relax. Learn to watch. Learn to wait. Be sober in times such as these. Just relax. There's a spiritual element. It's been foreordained. We know the end of the story. We get a glimpse of it right here in chapter 12, 13, and 14. Who cares about an election in a country where two parties are just two left wings flying in circles and flapping endlessly around the clock? Who cares? Relax. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. He that is in you is greater than the Republican Party. He that is in you is greater than the United States of America. Besides, is it an election we'll have in November or is it a selection? It's a selection because there's a spiritual element and powers and principalities control for their own purposes. There's no election, there's a selection. You just think you're electing your leaders because you're blind. Do we have corrupt leadership in this country because the people are corrupt? Or do we have corrupt people because the leadership is corrupt? The answer is yes and yes. And it's a spiritual problem of spiritual proportions. So relax. Live well. Preach the gospel. Obey God rather than men. That's the best revenge against these wicked people in our country. That's the best revenge. There's a spiritual element of spiritual proportions that only God can fix. So let's be His ambassadors and let's not refrain from truth because we're afraid of what's happening politically in this country. Exodus chapter 14 verse 14. God told Israel something. I like to use this verse when I'm doing a martial arts demonstration uh, to, to Jewish people and it's a bridge to the gospel. doesn't matter how skilled you are in martial arts. doesn't matter how skilled you are in any type of combat. What kind of guns you have or what size your muscles are. It's always better to let God fight for you than to try to fight for yourself. What did Moses tell The children of Israel as they stood on the precipice of the Red Sea with Pharaoh and his armies, his chariots approaching. He said, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Just hold your peace. Don't freak out. God will fight for you. I think that's what we need to do. Understanding there's a spiritual element, a spiritual war in place concerning which we already know the outcome maybe we should be those that just hold our peace and let God fight. I don't think we ought to be spending our time getting into politics and try to campaign for candidates. When we go out to lift up a voice in defense of the unborn or speak against the immorality of homosexuality and gay marriage and all of this filthiness in our country, let's don't do it to promote an agenda. Let's just do it because it's the truth. Let's not seek to try to change laws. We can't do it. Let's just seek to speak truth and hold our peace where the future of this country is concerned. We know where the future of this country is concerned. Political, political commercial Babylon will be overthrown in an hour. Despite how great she is to all the merchants and kings of this earth, in one hour her judgment has come. This nation is doomed. It will be overthrown. Quickly. But let's hold our peace and let the Lord fight for us, knowing there's a spiritual side behind it all. The second thing we need to remember when we look at these chapters, and I'm just, I am just—I know I'm going a little bit long, Satan hates Israel and he wants to obliterate her completely to extinguish her race from the face of the planet. When Muslim leaders speak of wiping Israel off the face of the map, map, that is Satan the dragon speaking. History clearly attests to this. Attempt after attempt after attempt to eradicate the Jew. And yet he remains. Yet he defies the odds and defies all logic. And not only remains, but has been regathered into his land. As of 1948 and yet survives. Despite being surrounded by enemies. Satan hates Israel. And he's not done trying to obliterate her. He's not finished. Satan hates the church. Because the church is the spiritual seed of Abraham. But forget not that he hates the physical seed as well. And let's not us be a part of that. Shame on the anti-Semitism that's in the church. Let's not be a part of that. Anti-Semitism is Satan's tool. And yet in the church anti-semitism and replacement theology go hand in hand. I've never, ever, ever spoken with somebody that follows replacement theology who is not anti-semitic in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Maybe not consciously, but it always comes out in some criticism of Israel or disdain for them. The Bible says be careful. They are enemies for the gospel's sake. And they do... A lot of them do hate the gospel and they will persecute us if they find out we're trying to share the gospel with them. But they're beloved for the election's sake. Let's don't be a part of Satan's strategy. His strategy is to hate Israel. Don't be so disgusted with the church that we hate the bride of Christ either. Just because the churches are doomed and there's so many false teachers the church is not doomed, the true body of Christ doesn't mean there's not a remnant body somewhere that's not an excuse for you to stay home and worship God in your own time don't hate the body of Christ, that's what Satan does don't hate the Jew that's what Satan does why does Satan hate Israel so much go back to the Garden of Eden God told the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush him Messiah is the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man, born of a virgin. He came through the physical lineage of Abraham. And based upon the promises made to Abraham that Satan was not ignorant of, he felt like if he could destroy the physical seed of Abraham, he could keep Messiah from coming into the world. Messiah didn't only come through Israel, But Satan knows that he can only come again when Israel calls for him and recognizes him. Hosea says that that Christ will return to his place until they acknowledge their iniquity and call for him. Satan knows this. So if he can destroy Israel, they can't call for Messiah. Messiah can't come back and set up a kingdom. He tried to destroy Israel to keep Messiah from coming into the world once. He failed. Now he wants to destroy them to keep him from coming the second time. Because the Word of God which cannot change, which God has lifted above His name, says that He will not come until Israel acknowledges their iniquity. So if they're extinguished, how can they do so? Satan's not a replacement theologian. Satan is not a covenant theologian. He knows the truth about Israel. And he's doing everything in his power to stop their spiritual awakening. Including, I believe, the sowing Of false replacement teachings and false scriptural allegories within the churches. But it's all an exercise in futility. It's an exercise in futility, as we're going to see in this war that's unveiled to us in Revelation 12 through 14. It's an exercise in futility. It's kind of like the lesser of two evils political mentality that a lot of Christians have. Christians that stress out and trip over themselves to vote for Republican candidates, thinking this will actually stem the tide of the end. Thinking it will actually stem the destruction awaiting this country and all of commercial Babylon. It's an exercise in futility. Relax. These are things we need to keep in mind as we get into this Picture of Satan's war against Israel. And we'll look at that next week. There's a classic way in which this is often described. What's described is the seven personages or the main characters of the tribulation period in this spiritual realm. We've got the woman, the dragon, the man-child, the archangel, the remnant, the beast out of the sea, and the beast out of the earth. The seven main spiritual Uh, uh, entities. Well, that's true. Some would look at chapter 12 as important characters of the tribulation. Chapter 13, wicked rulers of the tribulation. And chapter 14, the ultimate triumph of Christ in the tribulation. Those are legitimate ways to look at it. To view these chapters. And we should keep them in mind. But... There's an interesting word that appears twice as the chapter opens. There's an interesting word that appears twice in the first four verses. It's the word wonder. John sees seven different characters, but only two of them are described as wonders. And I'm going to talk about that next week. That means everything else that's revealed must be in relationship to the two described as wonders. And what are described as wonders, the woman, which I believe represents Israel, and the dragon, which represents Satan. So everything else that's described, even the introduction of other characters, makes sense to me, would be as they relate to the two main characters. So keep that in mind. It doesn't mean classic outlining of these passages is wrong, but what we're going to see is a war. It's two main players, it's underlying cause, it's heavenly campaign its earthly campaign, and its victory campaign. We're going to see all of this in these three chapters. It's a parenthesis to zoom out and show us the spiritual war that's being worked out on earth. It's just like when God reveals the creation story in Genesis. He tells it to us in general terms in chapter 1. And then the narrative pauses And he goes back in chapter 2 and zooms in on what's happening specifically in the Garden of Eden with regard to man and woman and retells it with more detail. The narrative doesn't advance, but he pauses to explain in more detail. This is what we're seeing in Revelation. This happens in literature all the time. The narrative is advancing, but at times God zooms in to show us what's happening behind the scenes. Or he zooms out to show us what's happening behind the scenes. And so we're having a lot more of this as these things come to a crescendo. Any questions? I still am about 11 minutes shy of breaking Matthew's record. So don't be too upset with me this morning. (laughs) All right, Revelation chapter 12. We'll get into specifics next week and you can use this outline to study thereby.